Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. Welcome to the show. This is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens. Joining me, Gretchen and Bill, welcome to the show. Hey there. Hello. Hey, I think we're, is this thing on? (laughs) So... We're going to have a guest this week that's going to be talking about nonprofits and technology related to them. She's worked on developing software specifically related to the nonprofit arena, which is its own beast. And I can speak from experience on that, but it's great to have the resources available. And there's a lot of things out there nonprofits may not know about, but it's also a very different approach to be able to write software for essentially volunteers instead of employees. It makes a difference. So she's going to be speaking to that and some of the things that they're doing and some of the problems they've had and some of the solutions they've come up with. That's coming up in a little while. And then next week, we are going to have an expert talking about AI and the direction that it's going. So before that, we wanted to address a topic that we've kind of covered in the past, but is really worth a deep dive is what's happening with content creators. And I'm using that as a generic term, not just bloggers, but people like uh, artists. You know, we have all of the AI art and some of the stuff coming up. And uh, we've talked about the thing that Wizards of the Coast had happen and some of that. But I think it's worth the discussion because, uh, number one, a lot of questions are coming in about this and a lot of very valid ones. Is this going to end a lot of people's livelihood to other things about, you know, intermediary stuff and where it will be? So anyway, that's coming up in the second half and certainly worth the listen. And please do send us your questions on that. This is a big topic, especially for a lot of us, and is something that we want to address. And what I'd like to do is get some more experts on over the course of the year. And I'll base that on the feedback we get from you and what information we need to actually dive into. Alrighty, guys, what do we have in the news this week? Apple cancels electric car project. Yeah, and I know before we started recording, you said you didn't even know they were doing an electric car. Yeah, I was like, what's that? (laughs) So this has been something that's been in the rumors, although they have been working on it for a while now. And it's kind of been a, well, we're going to do it. Oh, we're not as interested, but they haven't stopped production of the whole thing. Well, they just announced that they did. They're moving the employees in that department over to AI development. And what this was going to be is a rival or at some point a joining of Tesla. I mean, there was even some talk from what I understand at one time about merging those together and it didn't. And anyway, so a lot more to go into there than we could right now. But there was the possibility that you would have your iCar, I'm sure they call it something else, but your iCar, (laughs) and uh, which is made by Apple and is an electric car. And I think what's playing into this is the electric vehicle industry as a whole is having some problems. They're not selling like they expected. And There's some other things out there, which it's a new technology, and I think it's one that will eventually do well. But right now, people are being concerned about spending $50,000, $60,000 on a vehicle when it doesn't start because there's a snowstorm or whatever. So, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Netflix just gave Apple users a serious downgrade. What you need to know. This came in originally as a listener question and then was in our news research this week. And I had a little trouble finding out even what was going on here because as far as I knew on Apple, you just subscribe to Netflix like anything else. But what this goes back to is at one time, you could buy your Netflix subscription through the iTunes store. And 
Netflix actually stopped doing this a while ago, but anybody that was set up that way, they were allowing to continue to be set up that way. But the problem is, it's what they call the Apple tax. And a similar thing exists on Android. But in this specific situation, Apple charges 30% of anything that's purchased through their store for the privilege of doing that, which means Netflix, $10 a month subscription, they're only getting $750. And this is across the board. There's some exceptions for smaller developers and things. But for the most part, that's the way that it works. And this has been going through courts and everything like that. We've talked about it a little bit in the past on whether they're allowed to do it and on and on. So at this point, if you are paying for your Netflix through iTunes, and this is the only people that will affect, not all Apple users, and you don't switch it off, you're going to get a little bit of an unpleasant surprise because not only will the billing stop, they're going to move from what I understand to a formal billing that is a difference in price for the same tier of like $9 to 28 or some such thing. So check it out and make sure that you change your subscription around so that you don't get a surprise. Disney Plus account sharing ends March 14th. I did not know yeah, so, that you could even share your Disney Plus account because we were always told you can't. <laughs> well, you might have been told that, but uh, the technology didn't explicitly block it. Now, this is following what Netflix did last year, and okay. uh, they get more money if more people pay for the service. So... Disney is putting in a a situation similar to what Netflix did that will prevent it from being used in multiple locations and so on. So that's what that's about. I thought you could take your Disney Plus account and use it on your phone or your laptop or your your TV set, and you had to log in each time. So I haven't specifically seen or I've seen, but I haven't tried out how they're doing the block on this. But the bottom line of it is, is yes, you can do that. You can do that with Netflix. But if you were to attempt to, let's say, load Disney Plus at your house, and then I wanted to try to get your account at my house, that wouldn't work on the television. Now, if you came over here with a cell phone, it still should. So okay. it's going to be very interesting to see how we, how, I, I wouldn't use uh, the word I'm, hack, I'm how we get concerned. around these restrictions. <laughs> see, I'm not sharing my Disney Plus account with anybody. But I want to yeah. be able to use it on any of the TVs in my house. And it's like, and my understanding was as long as there was only one, you know, one um, usage at a time, it was fine because you have to put in a password each time you get in. The way that that works is you will still be able to use it on any television in your house. Okay. And you sh- and, and the Netflix version of this did still work on your phone. Even when you left the house, it seems to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so that won't change as long as they do it right. But if you were to go to another house and try to load it on there onto a television, then it would block it. Huh. Even if you put in your the password whole. and you're, you're not playing it at home, you're playing at your friend's house. Correct. And that's the same thing that Netflix did is oh. to, uh, prevent that type of thing from happening. So. We'll see how this comes out when we get to March. I don't subscribe to Disney Plus anymore, but when we get to March 14th, maybe we'll try it with yours and see what actually happens. <laughs> okay. I don't think I like that. <laughs> <laughs> James Webb Space Telescope finds extremely red, supermassive black hole growing in the early universe. You know, we could do an entire podcast series on everything that the James Webb Telescope is finding. It's really cool. And if you're into space, it's something to absolutely track. And they have a website specifically for this that does a much better job than we ever could of covering these things. 
But one thing I'm going to note on this is we get a lot of questions in, and I am not an expert on these areas. I, I'm just a hobbyist like many of us. I have a telescope, but I'm not you know, a doctor in, in astronomy or something. But the one thing of it is, is to remember that what we see is light that was created a long time ago. So light moves at the speed of light. And if you think about it right now, this takes an extremely long time based on the distance to get from the source to us. So what we're seeing is something that actually happened a very long time ago as to when it happened that's based on how far away it is. But even if you look at something like the Voyager 1 spacecraft that's in interstellar space now and is our farthest man-made object uh, and all of that, the radio signals travel at the speed of light. And it's something like 21 hours communicate with it now. And that's something that we've just sent out, which isn't by these standards very far away. So just something to realize, not only in a, are you seeing a lot of really just neat, cool stuff with the telescope, you're kind of seeing back in time because what you're seeing happened a long time ago. It's hard to wrap your mind around that a little bit. Kind of cool. <laughs> White House urges developers to switch to memory-safe programming languages. And since you're a programmer, you should be able to explain this to us. Yeah, so this is actually kind of interesting. And when I saw this come through, uh, I read about it to see what they're actually doing or what they're wanting to do. And they're defining programming languages that they consider safe. So what this goes to is that a lot of methods of hacking deal with getting into the memory of a compromised computer or whatever to be able to manipulate it in some way and get information out. So some programming languages rely a lot more on third-party stuff for handling that than others do. The languages that they were talking about specifically were C and C++, but I think there's a number of other ones out there that would work. In fact, I know there are that would work in the same way that when it operates, so when you build an application in one of these languages and it runs, a lot of the stuff that it's doing is based on the operating system or third-party stuff or whatever. And some of that can be compromised. And one of the things that's happened is, as programmers is we've gotten access to equipment with a lot more memory and all of that kind of stuff. We've ended up in a situation where we've kind of gotten lazy with our code. We don't build things as tight as we once did. So one of the languages that they're talking about using that they consider safe is a language called Rust. And it's not one that a lot of people have heard of. I've worked with it quite extensively. And working in robotics, we use it because it's a much tighter language. It fits in a much smaller space. But yeah, it doesn't have as much ability for a hacker to be able to get in and manipulate things like they would through a compiled language like C or C++. So C Sharp, on the other hand, is one that they're recommending for the C language libraries, which is an object-oriented language, which programmers will understand that is to be a little bit different type than procedural, which is the ones that they seem to be worried about. So from that standpoint, that's what's going on. So it might very well be time to think about changing the language you're using. This is not going to happen overnight, and it's not going to be easy, but it might help with some of the hacking. All right, so this week we have a guest. We talked about this a little bit in the beginning of the show who's going to be joining us and talking about technology in the nonprofit world and some of the specific things that go along with that. Welcome to the show. Um, so my name is Mia Kodalik. I'm a freelance web and software developer. I have been working in freelance tech for around six years now. Um, and one of the things that uh, I have kind of like specialized is working with nonprofits. Um, I like, you know, it, it's very 
the work is very satisfying. So it's an industry that I really like to be in. Um, and yeah, I just help them with, you know, tech solutions for nonprofits. So nonprofits is an interesting area to think of because it's something that I know that we haven't really talked about a lot here on the show. So let me ask you some questions about that. Do you custom tailor the user experiences? What's different about a nonprofit? Yeah. So, I mean, I custom tailor the user experience for any organization that I'm working with, if it's like a nonprofit and if it's not a nonprofit. Um, but nonprofits tend to have a lot of volunteers. So one thing that's unique about the user experience in that scenario is you want to have like really low barrier to entry, really simple tools because um, people are volunteering their time. So they don't you want you don't want to ask too much of them or, you know, cause them to get frustrated. So um, making things really simple, like extra simple. I mean, all UI is it's good to be simple, but that's um, really important, especially when you're asking volunteers to help you out. I can see where that's a very true thing because you're not going to really, in a lot of cases, be able to onboard somebody like you would in a job where they're trained and whatnot. So you would need an experience where they could basically just sit down and use it. And uh, I could see where that would be definitely a specialization. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've experienced with this and some of the issues you've had and some of the successes? Sure. Yeah. So one thing with nonprofits is um, generally they, they are kind of more strapped for funds than other industries, um, and they can't invest in technology solutions um, as much as, you know, in other sectors. And so some of the things that I've had to do uh, are kind of look to the future and build out solutions that have enough like administrative controls that um, the, you know, whoever's running the company can manage work without having to engage, um, you know, somebody in tech or a programmer for every little thing. Um, so building things that are sustainable for the future and, you know, getting them really set up well with good tools and then kind of backing off and transitioning um, the, you know, administration of the tools over to somebody who might not have a tech background is definitely something that's important. Um, and, you know, making something that is easy for somebody without a tech background to manage is kind of, you know, a challenge in, in this um, when you're dealing with a situation like that. Um, one of the nonprofits that I've worked with for the past three years now, Community Loaves, um, they're based, they started out in Seattle, actually, um, and now they've spread to four or five states across the United States, which is really exciting. Um, but a lot of their backend technology uh, I built out with a team of two other developers, and it's basically meant for, for them to take control over the organization and really be able to manage everything easily. Okay, great. Uh, Gretchen, did you have a question? Oh, I was just thinking that um, in the past, when we've worked with some nonprofits, we've had to rescue them from less than um, nice um, software developers. Have you had to rescue any of your nonprofits from from bad programming or bad websites? So thankfully, um, most of the nonprofits I've worked with, I've actually joined them at the very early stages. So before anything like that really happens. But one of the things that I've had to definitely rescue people from is just the database in quotes um, mm-hmm. using Excel sheets um, or uh, Google, like Google Sheets, um, that kind of a thing I have had to work with, which I mean, it's a great tool for people who are starting out. But definitely when you want to do more complex data analysis and really have control over your database, you want to move into something that's a more um, robust solution rather than just Google Sheets or Excel. Um, and you know, the data cleanup with that can be super crazy because, you know, you're not controlling any of the inputs. So, um, that can definitely be a rescue situation for sure. 
Now, when you've gotten involved, and I know you've said you've uh, had the fortunate thing to be involved from the beginning, and I know a lot of my programming career is is like what Gretchen was asking about going up back and fixing stuff. So it's nice to be able to do it right right out of the gate. What would you say is the difference for a nonprofit with proper technology versus if they're trying to work on something like Excel? Do you see it kind of, uh, because I know you mentioned the one you're working with that seems like it really pushed it ahead. What has your general experience been with that? Yeah, so um, definitely when you move to a more customized solution, it's just a, a ton of time saved on administration work. I mean, one thing for Community Loaves is they do um, you know, flower packaging and delivery. So you can actually order the flour that they use to bake these um, bread loaves that they, they donate. So they handle all of the delivery for that. And we've designed software solutions at the back end that allow them to have their truck routes that they're delivering to, all the order forms, all the addresses, all the contract information, all of that is done automatically and printed out. And then the volunteers just grab their sheet and know their route for the day. So um, that's the kind of thing that cuts down on a lot of time because, you know, the, the person who's running the organization would have to do that by hand and that would take lots of hours or the volunteers would have to do it. And you might not be able to find somebody who's like has enough time to do all that stuff. So, I mean, it just it greatly in, uh, increases productivity for everyone. So, OK, so, I mean, that sounds incredible. Now, I would also assume that with nonprofits, a lot of this is bring your own device, because unless you're well funded, you're not going to be providing, you know, a device for them to use. How do you deal with dealing with different kinds of platforms? Because I'm sure you see iPhone and Android and everything else out there. And it seems like there would be a certain amount of uh, uh, issue trying to get everything to work together. For sure. I mean, that's where web applications really comes in handy because you can access it from, you know, pretty much any device with a browser. Um, but I mean, even still, there's difficulties with, you know, different browsers. Um, Safari is always a one that's in there that's got some unique stuff going on. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, so that's definitely a difficulty is making it work on all the different browsers. But as far as applications go, like not having to have like a separate like iOS or Android app or anything, we, we use web-based tools for most of our stuff. Um, and then that keeps it pretty accessible. So if there's a nonprofit out there and there will be that needs work with their uh, infrastructure, are you looking for clients like that? And how would they interact? What would they need to do to be able to start to get a solution to these kind of problems? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, my website is miacodalic.com. People can always reach out to me and I'm happy to help them um, consultate, uh, do consultations. And, you know, if it's a solution that I don't have the bandwidth for, I'm happy to make recommendations. Um, but uh, I, Community Lowe's found me through Upwork, um, which is also a site for hiring freelancers. And that can be hit or miss. Um, I've had good experiences with it. But you, there is some like, you know, you do have to set some time for doing interviews and kind of making sure you're picking a, a person who's a good fit for you. Um, I wouldn't expect to, you know, first experience with it, just go on there, spend 20 minutes and, and already find somebody. You might get lucky, but um, it can be hit or miss. So I would definitely budget out some time for, for finding somebody good because you, you don't want to end up in a situation like you were talking about earlier where you have somebody designing a solution for you that just is not sustainable or you kind of get held hostage into going back for them because they're the only one who knows how to work on your um, tech stack. So can you, you know, that's your... an important thing to throw out is with Upwork is because they sites like that. Uh, I've worked with it and that where they were called Elance, same site, but it was rebranded right. a while back. And you do want to be careful because you've got to interview both sides of the coin, clients and providers. You've got great people, but boy, if you don't do it right, you can have some problems. 
So if somebody wants to talk, um, communicate with you specifically, can you say your website name again, a little slower? Sure, sure. It's miakotalik.com, M-I-A-K-O-T-A-L-I-K. Thanks. Um, We'll go ahead and get that out on our social media too. And the other thing that's in your uh, CV here is it says you also host a podcast. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I just started recording for it. it the first episodes will be coming out March 15th. Um, it's called Technically a Podcast Pathways to Programming. And basically, I'm just sharing stories of how people got into tech because it can be kind of a little bit of a scary time to be in tech right now, a little bit demotivating with all the layoffs and you know just high pressure environments. So I'm just kind of trying to highlight the happy things that, you know, what made people really interested in technology and the drive to problem solve and, you know, just passionate about working with computers. Um, and so I'm trying to highlight those kinds of stories and tell st- like diverse stories of different people in different industries. And I actually have guests from all over the world so far. Okay. That sounds like something I'm going to be listening to right out the gate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. So that um, I will also, you can find that on my website. Um, when it comes out in March. And then also um, my Instagram is where I post updates for that most often. So that would be helloitsmia.tech. Okay, helloitsmia.tech. We'll go ahead and, like I said, get this all outlined on our social media so that you can find this. So if you're driving right now while you're listening to us, don't try to write it down. Wait until you can go back to our website, userfriendly.show, and get this information. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much and good luck on your new podcast. Thank you. Yeah. And if anybody is in the Pacific Northwest area or actually out in California now too as well and wants to get involved volunteer baking, um, communityloaves.org is where they can find that. And it's just a really great organization where you bake bread and then it goes to different food banks and um, is just fighting food insecurity in um, yeah, your local communities. I think stuff like that's amazing. And it is so important, especially in this day and age, to support if you can. Because, you know, food insecurity is a big deal and having an organization that will, you know, is out there, it sounds like designed specifically to help with that. Those are the ones that really, I, I really respect that. Yeah, they're they're really doing great work. Um, and they, they also try and provide education for baking as well. So if like you're, you want to learn how to bake or, you know, you're already a baker, but you want to learn special techniques, um, everyone there is really qualified to provide really good education. And they're really good about helping you out, holding like one-on-one sessions on Zoom. And yeah, just a great thing. All right. Wonderful. Is there anything else you want to tell us? Um, I think that's it. I mean, yeah, that's where you can find me on my website, miakotalik.com. Hello, it's me on Instagram. Um, and I've got my podcast coming out. And yeah, I keep pretty much people updated on social media if I've got anything else going on. So that would be a good place to find me. Sounds great. We'll certainly have some questions come in on this. And after you start your podcast, why don't we get you back on here again? And you can tell us what that was like, because there's a lot of people out there that are very creative, that have a message to get out. And sometimes getting these things started is very daunting and mm-hmm. it's really not. So we'd love to hear how that actually goes after you launch, if you are available. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. So I did kind of a soft launch with technically a podcast, um, tech tips for business success, but that has a different audience. It's more for small businesses. So if anyone listening wants small business tech tips, um, they can also find that on my website and social media. But um, that was kind of my soft launch, and I enjoyed it. So I decided to make this other show as well. All right. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Great area. And, you know, it's interesting to think about the differences in different industries and how you have to deal with that. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Have you seen him? He's from the future.
Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Check out our website. That is your one stop for everything user-friendly. Userfriendly.show is the domain name. And on there, you can ask your questions, listen to past episodes, read the Tech Wednesday articles, and even turn on the flash briefing through your smart speaker. Yes, that's a thing. And the instructions to do that are on the website. But we appreciate the input from everybody. It helps us program our show. It helps us answer questions. And it's great to see the interaction. Podcast is available on most podcasting networks. But again, if you can't find it or if you find another user-friendly out there, because there are a few other ones that try to use our name, go through our website again, userfriendly.show, and you can get and make sure you have the right information or listening to the right thing. All right. So next week on the show, like we were talking about in the intro, we're going to have an expert on talking AI. and a lot of good information in that interview, but one of the concerns that we have, one of the concerns that we've gotten from you guys as questions all over the place deals with AI and pending doom for anybody artistic and how that is going to work. So there's a lot of different things going on. And the first thing I want to do is address a question that came in that's on this topic, but is a little bit different, but kind of is the same idea, and it has to do with something from Spotify. So where this began is Spotify, a few weeks ago, put out an update to their terms of use, and this applies to Spotify Spotify and another company called Findaway Voices, uh, which they acquired back in 2022, and this has to do with audiobooks. And the concern was in the original terms they had the right to translate or create derivative works from these audiobooks. Well, that could create a situation. Again, I'm not an attorney, but just knowing this as a layman, this could create a situation where potentially Spotify could take something that you've written, put out there as an audiobook, and have a right to use it to generate derivative works, which would be like a follow-up or translate it or do other things with it. So to that end, we were doing a little research, and the Authors Guild reached out to Spotify to find out what is going on. They've had a lot of questions on this too. And to their own members, they had advised anyone who contacted them not to accept the new agreement. Now, of course, if you don't accept the new agreement, your audiobook is no longer available after this goes into effect. So they reached out to Spotify and Spotify explained, or at least this was the answer to that, that the intent behind the language was not to grab rights or to train AI, but to give Spotify the rights to use the audiobooks to improve, I'm reading, discoverability and implement technical protocols against fraud, not to generate new content. So even though the terms of use said that they could generate new content, they're saying that that wasn't the case. (laughs) So, um, yeah. uh, (laughs) Uh, What would a lawyer say about all of this? You well, know? you need to ask one. And if yeah. anybody's listening that is a lawyer and would like to comment on us, hit the website because I'd love to uh, to hear about this because it is definitely a concern. And apparently we're not the only ones that had this concern because the day after the Authors Guild got a hold of them, mm-hmm. Spotify changed this. And the updated new terms to the new terms remove the rights to translate and create derivative works from the grant of rights and make the grant of rights revocable by the authors. And it, it further says that it does not authorize Spotify to create, use user content to create new ebooks, audiobooks, or use it for voice, voice narration, AI training. So this was something that was addressed 
And so they've rolled it back. So according to the Authors Guild, the new terms of use are okay, but they're going to keep an eye on it as we will too, because this type of a thing, we you just got to be careful. And this is true across the board. Spotify mean one thing, but there's a lot of people out there that will try to take and use your stuff and they don't always want to pay you for it. Yeah. And I, I don't think that was actually the intent here, but there's others that definitely are. So you got to watch it. And these big, long documents that a lot of us just click, we accept the terms. You do have to be careful because if you're a creator and you don't watch this, you could actually lose the rights to control whatever you're creating, which would be exactly a problem. So yeah. anyway, so that's the answer on that. And that being said, creative work, AI. Now I'll start with my own story on this because I, I think at least right now, there is some potential issues between what an AI would do and what a human would do. And one of these things is, is we've been working with ChatGPT on doing some of the content for our Tech Wednesday articles. (laughs) And as an experiment, we let ChatGPT write an article. Now, Gretchen, what was your um, opinion of that article? Uh, How many Zs can I put across the screen? (laughs) I mean, oh my gosh. It was so boring, I can't remember what it was about, but it was like, it was like I was trying, it was like reading a user manual, but I wasn't trying to figure something out. It was, I was supposed to read something to educate me and I was bored. I, it was, it was, it was bad. I was so bland. It was very forgettable. So I think so. (laughs) It lost a lot of the charm, you know? Right, right. And it felt like something that wasn't... It also felt like marketing, too. Yeah. Marketing is dull. So from that standpoint, although marketing shouldn't be dull, marketing also should be engaging just in a different way. If it's dull, you're you're doing it right. Well, irritating, (laughs) sure, but uh, not boring, you know? So, Bill, you know, we mentioned in the previous section that there was an issue with AI and Wizards of the Coast. Can you give us a quick just brief for anybody that may not know about that? What happened? Well, what happened was they were publishing one of their campaigns and they'd hired an artist and they said, oh, well, this artist, you know, we've been using them for years. This artist is great, except for it came back. The artist had been using AI for their very short development or growth and uh they were putting ai generated images into this campaign and they were absolutely terrible there were the images yeah the the images were absolutely terrible extra legs extra fingers the usual <laughs> you get with ai yep so it doesn't look quite right now i think going into the future a lot of those problems will probably get better but even so, what the kind of comes down to with all of this is content creators cost companies money. But to do it right, you need people that know how to write or create or do artwork or whatever the need is for the given situation. So things like graphic design, artistic creation, um, writing, of course, are all areas that very likely will be affected and already have started to be affected by 
AI, the one of the things that I was reading about on this that is a goal of the newspaper industry, and yes, there is still a newspaper industry, I, I think, um, <laughs> but of that industry is for AIs to be able to look at what's happening in the news and automatically publish an article without a writer to the various news outlets' website. And taking that to another extent to even be able to do video that's created by an AI, which is already doable, and be able to take it from there. Now, as AI sits today, you wouldn't be able to, uh, you would, I'm sorry, you would be able to tell the difference because Gretchen and Bill, like what you're talking about, it isn't perfect. But the question becomes, is the ethics of all of this, is, is this something that's eventually going to take out the ability to make money if you're an artistic person? Because if you're a writer or artist or that type of a thing, you still have to eat. And yeah. a lot of the jobs that are in this kind of thing have to do with designing or working for news outlets and other organizations like that that use artwork. I, I yes. could see. So I'm going to throw it to you guys. Are, are either of you concerned about this? Do you think that this could become a problem? Is it already? Bill, I could see. Um, okay. Suppose they, they have somebody doesn't care about having the articles proofed because I proofed. The article, and then it was it was so dull, you know. But if you have a company that just oh, just put that out, you know, we don't have to pay anybody to proof it. We don't have to pay anybody to write it. We just put it out. Well, how how long before people stop reading? Because the content is so uninspired, so boring, so unengaging that it reads like a user manual. And that's going to hurt things in the long run. So if you think you're being the great, you know, ed, you know, publisher, you might not be a publisher for much longer. You might be killing the industry. Yeah. At least that's my opinion. <laughs> On the artistic side, I, it is, it's weird because you have your traditional artists like myself, um, digital artists too i consider that now um you run into these galleries say on deviant art or other art sites that have thousands of images that they've created quote unquote and you just start looking through it and suddenly you realize it's all ai generated or they come out right up forward and say they're ai generated and it's like well why would i want any of this it's messed up. It's, you know, like I said, the AI can do some things pretty well and AI suffers at certain other things. But when you have an artist who's been, quote, an artist um, that just suddenly comes out of nowhere and has an account for a month that has 5,000 images compared to, you know, a traditional artist who might have 5,000 over. 10 years how is an artist supposed to keep up with that and especially with people who are looking for ways to cut costs like wizards of the coast did yeah right and and the thing is is it's where's the inspiration now now it a piece of software is not going to be inspired Okay, and uh, unless you actually have an AI that thinks for itself and is actually artificial intelligence as opposed to a piece of software, 
that they're calling artificial intelligence, you're not going to have inspiration because it doesn't think, it doesn't feel. When AI starts to think and feel, then you're going to have uh, writing and artwork that might have actual meaning, like what's done by human. At least that's my opinion. And um, no. <laughs> that's where it comes from. It's the feelings. I, I And I'm going to speak to one thing you just said. As a software developer myself, there is a lot of work that I do that's just because I need to do it because that's my job. But there is a certain amount of creativity and inspiration that goes into doing that. Um, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing because it's a very different. I am somebody that, I, and I've said this before, I, I'm not an artist and I can write, but I'm not a writer, Gretchen, like what you do. When I write, it's usually technical stuff and just stuff I've learned because I had to write to get through college. But when you code, it's a different kind of creativity, but you're still dealing with figuring out how to do certain things. And from that standpoint, it's interesting because I have tried and I use, and it does work, things like ChatGPT to put together certain aspects of code. So but it's it's not something I, I wouldn't be able to go there and say, okay, I want this uh, piece of software to do this and have it spit out all of the source code to a program. It, it, it'd be like what you're running into with the artistic and the writing that it, uh, it wouldn't be quite right. Even if it worked, it wouldn't do what you needed to do. So where I find I use it for is bits and pieces. If I need to do some function, I need to you know loop through a variable to find some kind of information. I can ask ChatGPT or others, how do you do this? in this language, and it will return the source code for that. And that usually is pretty helpful. But there's a huge difference between that and actually doing an end product. Mm -hmm. And they're miles apart. And then the other thing that we've been kind of talking about here is accuracy. Because if you don't prove stuff, you don't know and what you're getting is correct. And there's already been a lot of issues where AI has generated stuff that is wholly inaccurate. One of the bigger stories last year was a, I believe it was a lawyer that had filed a lawsuit and used AI to generate all the documents for the lawsuit and the information, and it was flat out wrong, oh, wow. uh, which created a number of problems, obviously, in court. Yeah. The other thing, too, is the ability to work with. So I, I went on after, after we recorded the interview, and again, it'll be on next week. I went on and tried out the generating a photograph AI. There's a different name for it. There's sites that do it, but it's basically what it is. You describe what you want, and it spits out an image. And I will say that from some of the standpoints, I can see where firsthand deep fakes are becoming a problem with this type of a thing. Now, looking at everything it did, I could see artifacts that told me that this was done by AI. This wasn't a real photograph. But in yeah. a world where a lot of people don't even read the articles and just share headlines and stuff, they're certainly not going to look at the depth of a video or photograph or something, and it starts to get shared and loops around as real, when in fact it could be something that's entirely false. So I see that as being a problem. Mm -hmm. you know? That was actually a problem for someone I know. Um, they work for, uh, worked for a major publication, and somebody came in with a quote-unquote photograph that they took of someplace, except it was a AI-generated image. And, you know, it was easy to figure that out because, you know, two left hands, not too many people running around with those. True. <laughs> and that's that's the idea of artifacting. You can, you know, you can tell certain things. 
But the question I would ask you, if you have someone that's just, you know, hitting the headlines, looking through the news, and that same image maybe appeared as part of a story, and they didn't look at it closely, do you think they'd get away with thinking maybe to some extent of the population thinking it's real? Oh, without a question. That's been a common thing throughout history for actually news articles and things like that. I mean, there's entire publications that make their business off of people believing them. You know, uh, we still have Bat Boy stuff coming out. Oh, yeah. The Young Yen is another one. And um, oh, yeah. now, of course, with those sites, at least with the Young Yen, it's, uh, you know, says right at the top of the screen, this is satirical. They're not trying to pass their stories on as real. But there have been several times where major news outlets, one that comes to mind is Fox, have picked up articles that started on the Young Yen and sites like that, narrated them as, as real, you know? So... Yeah. You definitely has to be the case. Now, that's something that if the art, in my opinion, if the article is published as satirical and it's not meant to be true and a news outlet publishes it's true, that's kind of on them because they obviously didn't do any research yeah. to be yeah. able to you know, verify the sources and all of that kind of thing. And um, that's part of just basic journalism, which isn't practiced, unfortunately, in a lot of cases now either. But, but you know, the other part is the ability to interact with the content producer you lose that with ai now bill you do artwork and i know you do some stuff on commissions what why don't you tell us quickly what the process is if somebody wanted to hire you to do art what do they do well it's pretty simple i mean they come to me with their idea uh usually i'm doing commission work dungeon and dragons characters so kind of have a general idea already they come to me and they say this is what i want this is kind of the pose i want them in and this is what they're wearing, you know, what color scheme, different things like that. And I work through a process of, you know, sketching it out and seeing, hey, is this what you're looking at for the sketch? And then, you know, there's a lot of different uh, times that I meet with the commission or to uh, determine that this is what they want. So there's a lot of effort and work and planning going on, you know? And interaction uh, with your customer, yeah, too, it sounds exactly. like. That would be something where you have a difference there. Now, Gretchen, I don't know if you've written or done art on commission. Um, no, I've, I, I, all, I do all my artwork for myself. Um, I, I, I discovered years ago when I was doing um, a Ren Faire, you know, making costumes is an art. Okay. And um, the minute you agree to have someone pay you, it, it, it crushes the art for me. Uh, other people, they're great at it. They can just go with it. But for me personally, it, it just ruined the process and the enjoyment of it. So I don't do that. Um, and as far as the writing, the creative writing, I've done that all myself. That's I I have not done a work for somebody, and this is what kind of made the Star Wars stuff really complicated. Um, my uh, original literary agent told me there was only one person who'd ever written an original Star Wars story that wasn't requested to write it. So um, I I was doing something unusual. Right. And, um, you know, maybe that's the way franchises work, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, you're dealing, you know, fan fiction, but that's not what you're doing if you're no, writing not a doing, novel. Yeah. And of course, you know, you're dealing with all of that, that and, kind of thing. And it just and I'm uh, trying to follow their prescribed stories. I'm not having a fantasy about Darth Vader or something, you know. <laughs> oh, so you mean if you're writing stories that were uh, Palpatine as clones and uh, <laughs> as a daughter, I think it was. Or anyway, that's yeah, a whole that other topic for like another time. <laughs> And it's, you know, it, it just, this is a total tangent, but it's a difficulty because when you cosplay that character and you're expected to do it to Canyon and you think Canyon? that some of the stories are absolutely <laughs> ridiculous, it does, it does make it hard. So, you know, but I think this is definitely something that is very valid to be concerned about. The other thing that we haven't touched upon yet is content creators. These are like bloggers and things. And this is a big industry. People do make their living sometimes. Well, there's even like the modeling industry. They were worried that the models were going to lose their jobs because you could just put up a, a, a fake, you know, human figure and slap the clothes image on these fake figures. That was a it's problem. A, well, you know, and, and going down that road, this is the one of the key things that caused the Screen Actors Guild SEG to strike last year was this idea that some of the studios wanted to pay an actor for a day's work and essentially scan their image into a computer and then have rights to do whatever they wanted with it afterwards. And it's like, not only could that go down a very dark road and you wouldn't uh -huh. have control over what's going on, you're not going to be able to perform your art or in this case craft, and you're not going to be able to earn your living doing it. And I mean, that would fundamentally change everything. And, and that's why they were on strike for so long. Unfortunately, we're being able to address these type of things to where AI as an augmentation is one thing, but to completely replace the artist is entirely another. And, you know, then when you have organizations like Wizards of the Coast did where, oh, we don't use any AI, and it's clear that they did. And, you know, so that kind of thing creates a trust issue on top of all of that. Yeah. Because they're trying to pass something off as something different than what it actually is. And they got bit back for that. I mean, it became very public. But not everybody does. And as these things get better and you can't tell as much, it's going to become even more of a problem. I know in the law enforcement area, they're having a problem now where people will cr create things like revenge porn when they break up with a, uh, a partner or something, utilizing AI and start posting that on the internet. And, you know, so it's, and again, laws have not kept up with technology. They never do. Technology tends to move a lot faster. But these are the kind of issues that are coming out of this. Another side of this, is the quote was chat, some chatbots are joining the dark side. You can actually go on the dark web now and they have chat box where you can ask, uh, how do I hack this system? And it will actually go out and figure out where all the security vulnerabilities are and go to the extent of giving you code to create ransomware to attack a given industry or company or whatever the case may be. And, you know, from that standpoint, there's been a lot of things. Pharmacies got hit a little while ago. Another one, I think, was Epic Games or one of those that really um, there's a claim out there that uh, they did some stuff. Sony, similar situation. And then when they wouldn't pay the ransom, they shared the information publicly. But these are the kind of things that are going on. So everything that we see from what we use on the regular web and stuff, which is very beneficial. And don't get me wrong. There's a lot of benefits that AI creates. There's a lot of things going on that are very positive, but it seems like when you cross the line of trying to claim something that's been generated by the computer as your own 
or is being generated by a sentient being, there's a, there's a problem. And it's, you know, it's creating that type of a situation. It's going to be interesting to see what the law does with these kind of things, but I don't know that you can legislate this out of existence either. Because while from one standpoint, they, you know, might have regulations eventually where you have to notify that you've used AI as a part of whatever it is. I mean, we can't even enforce really stopping robocalls. So, you know, how do you, (laughs) how do you take that a step further and be able to deal with this kind of stuff? So send us your questions and your comments. This is a big topic. And it's definitely something that we are going to loop back for as we get more information. Join us next week for the interview because this is an AI expert and he's somebody that can speak to and did speak to some of these things as well as some of the positives that are coming out of artificial intelligence. And, you know, again, it's like anytime you have new technology can be used for good or can be used for bad. With great power comes great responsibility. Hopefully I don't get yelled at for a copyright infringement <laughs> on that line. That Spider-Man would agree. All right. Until next week, this is User-Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2013 to 2024 by User-Friendly Media Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and guests and not this radio station. Please check out userfriendly.show for airtimes and podcasts.